All right, welcome to episode eight of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, this is the second episode now that I've, I'm recording during our rather interesting time in history with the COVID-19 situation. And uh, this is um, the first episode where I've had a family member as a guest. My guest this week is uh, my brother, Craig. Hello. Hey, Craig. And we're going to talk about Kevin Costner movies from 1989 to 1993. Uh, Not all of them, but uh, we're going to look at five movies this week as opposed to the normal six. But I'm not sure what's normal anymore. The last episode quickly reviewed nine movies. This should be back to a semi-normal format. We are trying to record this on Zoom and seeing how that turns out. And uh, so this will be a little bit of an experiment and hopefully it's a successful experiment and we don't have to re-record the episode. Craig, uh, we were talking about a bunch of different ideas for this show and you landed on the idea of uh, movies about Kevin Costner. So uh, why did you uh, choose this as a as a theme? Well, I guess we, we started a while ago talking about doing kind of a 90s family movie episode, a little bit of nostalgia. And in the end, through social distancing, we had to choose some movies that you had in your house and I had access to in my house. And so um, four out of the five movies I already owned and, and had access to and just one that I had to had to purchase. And so Kevin Costner was kind of the best theme that we could find that both of us had collections in, but it also does kind of fit with that 80s, 90s theme and some of those classic nostalgia films. And this, is, this is very 90s, even though uh, we do look at one uh, 1989 film in this pack. Yeah, so it was kind of the convenience of what you had uh, because I'm not in a position here in Calgary for me right now to lend you a bunch of my movies and it's and we can't meet in person to do this at the moment. So so uh, that's kind of what we, we went with and we talked about a couple different ideas. So the five Kevin Costner movies that uh, we're going to talk about in the order, not in uh, chronological order, but in the order that you as the guest have uh, selected it for us to talk about them. Uh, we're gonna start off with 1989's Field of Dreams. Then we're gonna take a look at uh, Clint Eastwood directed film, A Perfect World, starring Costner and Eastwood himself. Uh, then we'll look at 1991's JFK, directed by Oliver Stone. I want to make it clear, and I should make it clear with the next three films, some of the things with the version that you watched and the version I watched. In both cases, we're watching the director's cut version, which is the most easily accessible version of JFK. I'll more to say about that when we review it. Uh, then uh, Dances with Wolves. And the last one, years ago, I had a Blu-ray copy of the director's cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but I wanted the theatrical cut. And so we traded a DVD for a Blu-ray. So I have the DVD of the theatrical cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I think the one you were watching was the Blu-ray director's cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. All right, so we'll have different versions, but it's the same. And there just may be a couple things that as we're talking about it that um, may impact what we do. Uh, As always, what we're going to be doing is uh, talking about these movies at the end of the episode. Craig's going to have 50 points and he's going to award 50 points among the five films. I will award my 50 and whichever movie has the lowest score is the one that has to leave my movie collection. I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about If 
you say? I hate it when that happens. Me too. Who's your invoices? Ray is. <laughs> I think I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? Daddy, there's a man out there on your lawn. Are you a ghost? What do you think? You look real to me. Hi! You couldn't see it. This is really interesting. You believed in the magic. It happened. Isn't that enough? Annie, it's more than that. I feel it as strongly as I've ever felt anything in my life. There's a reason. Go the distance. Did you hear the voice, too? Did you hear it? Go the distance. Yes. Our grave is dead. He died in 1972. Are you Moonlight Graham? No one's called me Moonlight Graham in 50 years. Unbelievable. It's more than that. It's perfect. You build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere, and you sit here, and you stare at nothing. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. All right, so Kevin Costner was actually in uh, three Best Picture-nominated films three years in a row. Uh, the start of this streak was in 1989 for uh, Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams is about an Iowa corn farmer who's uh, played by Costner named Ray Kinsella, and he uh, begins to hear voices, and he interprets them as a command to build a baseball diamond in his farm field. He does this, and uh, the 1919 Chicago White Sox appear on his his uh, baseball field. Uh, again, the, this is a good movie as far as my nerddom, as far as baseball and movies put together, because I'm an enormous baseball fan. And the 1919 uh, Chicago White Sox uh, were part of a controversy where several players decided to throw a World Series to get some more money in their pockets, and it became a real black mark on that uh, organization. And uh, there's a lot of focus in, on a real baseball player named Shoeless Joe Jackson, who in this film is played by Ray Liotta. And and Shoeless Joe Jackson apparently took the money, but he didn't throw the World Series. There was no evidence of that. So I'm just going to throw it over to you. What do you think now, These all these years later, looking at Field of Dreams? This, for me, was one of the big nostalgia films. And um, it's really interesting. There's the uh, the side of it that's just personal nostalgia. Of This is a child childhood movie that our family watched and enjoyed. And um, I haven't watched it in a really long time. I actually was watching on VHS. Which, oh, did you? Uh, yeah. which is what made it just even more throwback. Uh, I put it in my VHS player and uh, had all of the static and, you know, watching the sunrise and sunset scenes and just seeing the, how the colors blurred. It was like stepping right back into the 90s. So it's very retro. I forgot about rewinding and <laughs> all these things was wondering why it was playing from the middle. But um, uh, when I, then the kind of the other side of the nostalgia is that's what this entire movie is, is about besides what else interpret it as the core theme but it's it's a nostalgia for uh an era that's that's kind of lost um uh, at that point and you know baseball as being the pastime of america and just kind of this going back to a simpler life in a simpler time um, and it's kind of sad because baseball season isn't running now and we were not that far off from opening day so like a very apropos movie for us to be watching right now well and besides that what's what's going on in the baseball world right now is a kind of a connection 
connection that I wrote down of <laughs> here's this this team that uh, was paid off to throw the World Series, and so they were all kicked out of baseball. And uh, you and I, as me becoming a ever-growing baseball fan in the last couple of years, have kind of had the conversation of what should happen to the Houston Astros right now. And our world has changed a bit in how we deal with with people who cheat. So they were cheating to win as opposed to cheating to lose. Yeah. Um, so for me, I mean, we get down down to it, and what this story is really about, um, maybe a bit, a bit of a sp- spoiler alert. Sorry, is um, yeah, that's the thing I failed to do. So um, in the introduction, I, I and sometimes I forget to do this, and I edit it in later. Is uh, we we do have spoilers for uh, these movies because we want to talk about them in a certain amount of detail. So if you've never seen Field of Dreams, uh, you may want to watch it before you listen to the, the review. Same thing with the other four movies we're talking about. Yeah, so really what I see as a theme in this movie is about father-son relationships and um, basically wishing to be able to, to, to redo parts of your life or, or fix things in your life. And, and that's that's the job of uh, Ray when he's building this field. He's kind of uh, bringing, bringing people's wishes to life, um, not for just for himself, but for others as well. And really central, central to that is his relationship with his father, which was a little strained. And his father too was a, a failed baseball player who didn't aspire to his dreams. And they had a broken relationship because uh, he was pushing his son too hard in baseball. Kind of the reason that I chose the order of reviewing is because that's a, it's very interesting. That's a theme that carries through in a few of these movies is this father-son relationship. And it makes me wonder if that's a piece of how Costner chooses his projects in this time i don't know if that has a personal connection to him but Foster has said because he's been criticized for having films that are really really long uh sports-based movies westerns uh he said he he's into old-fashioned filmmaking and and a lot of the projects he he picks are ones that he thinks are from from a different time uh you could argue this is a frank capra-esque type of movie and even to the point where uh, in, in looking at some of the materials here Phil Eldon Robinson who uh, adapted uh, the book by Canadian WP Kinsella um, what what he initially wanted with uh, the older character, the Doc Graham character, who was uh, played by Burt Lancaster in his last film role. Uh, he actually wanted to get Jimmy Stewart to uh, play that role, but uh, at that point, Jim Stewart hadn't been in a movie for about 10 years, so he was uh, pretty much retired from uh, from movie making. So that didn't happen, but there is a, a shot of uh, his performance in Harvey at one point that uh, Costner uh, and his wife, played by Amy Madigan, are, are, are is watching uh, while they're while they're eating breakfast. So there's a little bit of an homage to Jimmy Stewart uh, in the film there. Yeah, it's interesting. I can see him in that role. Um, it's interesting that you kind of just bring up the wife too. And so for me, when I went to assign points to these movies, which I know we'll discuss later, mm-hmm. uh, really back and forth on Field of Dreams, and um, in many ways it held up for me. Um, just the nostalgia and just kind of the the story that it that it's telling. This simple story of this family and this man with a dream and then this man is trying to connect to his past and and just kind of follow those dreams and follow those inspirations but at the same time the piece that as an adult watching this movie really pulled me out of out of it and made it unbelievable i mean we've already got voices in the field and people long dead appearing on a baseball field or um, time travel younger versions of themselves appearing on the side of the road and we've got 
all kinds of yeah time travel we've got all kinds of unbelievable things and i'm willing to accept those but the relationship between costner and his wife pulled me out of the movie because it wasn't believable her reactions to her husband saying i'm hearing voices in the in the field and i think i need to build a ball diamond she's just right away well if you think you need to do it like let's go for it And I mean, at one point when it's causing some financial stress and he wants to go off on a road trip, there's a bit of a debate, but then they have a shared dream that prompts her to get behind the idea and send him to discover more but it's just it seems too easy it does like she's very very understanding uh my only defense to that and i'm not sure you to play a ton of defense for this film but is they establish the fact that they're children of the 60s and uh she in particular is is very much uh counterculture revolution and so she's willing to uh accept some things that maybe some other people would not uh i i think kinsella himself as far as the right or Kinsella, not, uh, you know, not the characters, uh, that uh, I, I, I think he's a bit of a hippie. If I get a, a sense of him, I don't know for sure. Uh, and I think he kind of projected that onto the characters from the book. And that transfers over a little bit. But yeah, there is a point. And she had, like, there's a scene where she says, you know, I've, I've, I've gone along with this. I've been a bit of a sport, but now it's getting, it's getting to be a little bit too much. But I, I tend to agree. What other thoughts did you have about it? I mean, other than that, it's just, I don't think that I have much other than that. I mean, I took so many plot notes on all of them, but I just kind of summed everything up down to some, a few key points. Um, and that's it. Like for me, the, the biggest, flaw in the movie was that that interaction that relationship when talking about it with my wife sandy she she felt like there wasn't um any real conflict and we do have uh the the foreclosure on the farm and the brother-in-law constantly putting pressure on them to sell it to him and get rid of this Mm -hmm. ball diamond but for her she felt that that was so easily resolved was Uh, and i i remember feeling that conflict a lot more when i watched it as a child that felt more intense to me and it didn't feel as intense as an adult which is interesting because foreclosure is a bit of a uh, a bit of a um, concept <laughs> for pressure yes. but i don't know i it didn't bother me in the in the same way so timothy busfield plays the brother-in-law and i think he's a really soft antagonist uh, i was uh wp kinsella was asked to uh review the film version of his book and he said he would have given it four out of five stars and the star he would have held back there were two things he had an issue with one was the fact that uh that that character wasn't enough of a villain and uh, he felt in the source material that uh the character that he created should have been a little bit nastier uh, the other one was that he didn't believe uh that gabby huffman who is um plays the daughter she's gone on to a, a career as an adult she was in the tv show transparent uh but as a little girl she didn't look like she could be the child of kevin costner and amy madigan at, at all so those are the two qualms he had with the film i had a few others you know we have this um this notion that uh james earl jones plays this writer who was very big in the 60s and then became a recluse as i understand it that's uh based on uh, jd salinger who wrote catcher in the rye i didn't buy that costner could walk into this guy's place I, he would have ended up in jail the way he operated you know when he's told several times to get out and then he actually walks back in i i just did not buy the transformation as much i mean 
over time, that was the idea. They go to the baseball game and there's... Yeah, that's another one where experience. there was just... There's a really quick transition um, from he's so closed off and so against having this guy in at all. And he's, you know, going to chase him down with a baseball bat. And, and then just the simple mention that, no, you're a pacifist. And yes. he completely stops and softens. Oh, yeah. Why was he threatening... Yes, I better not. Why was he threatening him with a baseball bat if he's a pacifist? I don't know. But... Yeah, so it was... Yeah, that's that, right. I'm a pacifist. I forgot. That was a very simple, very quick uh, resolution. I, as well. I I have some issues. There there is a lot of schmaltzy melodrama in the last scene of this film. I, again, I don't I don't think I need to ruin too much of it, but I might ruin a little something here because it there's something that doesn't make a ton of sense. Well, there's probably lots of things that don't make a ton of sense when I actually think about them. If you actually break it down, you know, this is a great fantasy, but you know, if you think about it a little bit too hard and because it was a best picture nominee, I think we should think about it a little bit too hard. Like this is sure it's fluff, but it's, it's maybe should be under scrutiny. I'll explain why um, uh, it should be in a moment. All of the baseball players at the end, all these, and it's not just uh, White Sox that start showing up in the field after a while. It's a whole bunch of players. Uh, so they get this chance to play baseball again in, in their afterlife. And and they go and they play and they, they've told uh, Costner, uh, that's it, we're done for the day. And then they go off and then there's a, this other really important scene that happens, this plot twist, which was, is highly choreographed. I, I think, you know, if I had been 40 years old seeing the movie for the first time, I would have figured out what, uh, if you build it, he will come. The he actually means it's not uh, Chulis Joe Jackson or this uh, writer from the 60s or any of that stuff. But the, they've gone for the day. And uh, our last shot of the film is of a massive lineup of people coming to see a baseball field and pay money to get them out of this debt. And if they're going to be watching a baseball game, they're going to be sitting around uh, for hours and hours and hours waiting for tomorrow's baseball game to happen. Again, maybe that's me being a little bit overly critical here and yeah our our, our villain has a, a pretty quick turnaround there too and in, in our, our climax we have a little bit of a, a false scare involving a character who might uh who might die which felt really kind of over the top uh, there's a lot of stuff it, it is a talented cast though uh, i like ray liotta playing against type um i just very briefly talked about him as far as the uh the recently nominated marriage story uh and it was nice to see him in something which wasn't a gangster role or, or, or that kind of thing. This was a year before Goodfellas came out, and I think Goodfellas really typecast Ray Liotta. Uh, Liotta is is a pretty solid actor. Uh, the man he was actually playing was from the Deep South, um, was not really that New Yorkish. Uh, they had to make some um, adaptations. I guess uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson was a left-handed hitter, and Liotta is right-handed, uh, but he had to go through a lot of baseball training to be able to play. He does a nice job. His scenes are good. He has this kind of ghostly presence uh, throughout. James Earl Jones has very much a for, for your consideration speech. I know uh, Major League Baseball has loved this one. It's this big thing about the love of baseball towards the end. It feels a little bit ham-handed, but uh, James Earl Jones delivers a monologue like no other, and you can tell from his theatrical training. So I like the cast. I don't think it is quite the movie that I thought it was when I was younger, so it sounds like you are feeling kind of the same way. Yeah, it doesn't quite live up to my memory of it but it it 
held itself together fairly well. I have much higher tolerance for melodrama than you do, and uh, but we'll in these reviews we'll get to the point where it got to be too much. I'll tell you when when I <laughs> when I saw it going overboard. So fair enough. Yeah, I I think Me Feel the Dreams is a is a movie you feel good at. It's a bit formulaic. It is very Hollywood, but you can you can uh, show this movie to most people, and I don't think it's going to offend a whole lot of people. Uh, it's an interesting fantasy. Uh, I guess it's probably unfair to do this, but one of my big issues was this movie got uh, a nomination for Best Picture, and it indeed has a bit of a legacy. Um, people still remember it very well, which is a good thing, but it got a nomination for Best Picture and Spike Lee's film Do the Right Thing, a very, very important film in the history of cinema, was snubbed and did not have a Best Picture nomination and really only got about one Academy Award nomination. So this was a safer choice for the Academy because Do the Right Thing was about very edgy stuff with race relations in the late 1980s uh, all throughout America and specific neighborhood in Brooklyn and if you look at the two movies now it'd be hard for anybody I think to say that Field of Dreams is a better movie than Do the Right Thing. Yeah, I don't I don't see Field of Dreams being a movie that in the modern Academy would be able to get a uh, Best Picture nomination. It's a movie that uh, appeals to a wide audience. It's a movie that you can, like you said, sit down with anybody and watch. Great family movie Movie, but it's not um, it's not Academy Award winning material I don't think yeah it's 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 sentimental and it's an older demographic of Hollywood that would have loved this film I mean you got a lot in common Philip both of us is handsome devil we both like RC Cola and neither one of us got an old man worth a damn eight-year-old Philip Perry has just been taken hostage are you gonna shoot me oh yeah by the most dangerous man in West Texas. Put the gun down, old-timer. You couldn't hit me anyway. Probably shoot the boy. Get in the car, Phyllis. This could be Jump. his lucky day. That's my car! Complicating law enforcement attempts to apprehend him, Haynes is believed to have an eight-year-old boy with him as hostage. This is not a penal escape situation. This happens to be a manhunt. You know, Philip, you have an American right to eat cotton candy, ride roller coasters. You got a phone? No. Then go inside, lie down till we're gone. I told that judge to send them up. I told him it was the right thing to do. Kevin Costner. You're not bad, are you, Butch? Oh, yeah. Clint Eastwood. At least now we know who's in charge. In a new film by Academy Award winning director, Clint Eastwood. Have you ever ridden in a time machine before? Out there? That's the future. And back there? Well, that's the past. This is the present, Philip. Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> a perfect world. We're now moving on to uh, the newest of these films. Uh, and the newest of these films that we're talking about is from 1993, A Perfect World, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Kevin Costner. It's one of the few times that uh, Clint Eastwood, when he's acted in a movie, has uh, been second billing. Uh, he's often uh, top billing, but in this case, Kevin Costner got the lead role. So it's about a kidnapped boy, Philip Perry, uh, played by T.J. Lauer, who strikes up a friendship with his captor, Butch Haynes, uh, Kevin Costner, who's an escaped 
convict on the run while the search is headed up by an honorable Texas Ranger, Red Garrett, played by Clint Eastwood. Um, it's worth mentioning there's a little bit of an angle of religion here that Philip Perry is a boy who is a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, that kind of plays into uh, a, a couple things here. So that's a general plot summary for A Perfect World. Uh, I remember seeing this with my uncle, Rick, who's a big uh, Clint Eastwood fan at Place Riel Theatre, which no longer exists in Saskatoon. It's been a few years since I watched this one, too. Um, what do you think right now of A Perfect World? Perfect World is a movie that I actually saw when I was a little bit older. You showed it to me originally, and um, I really liked it. And it's a movie I've watched a lot. And uh, I don't know what it is about this movie that kind of draws me back quite a bit. Uh, but it was interesting kind of watching it with a more critical eye and, and just um, viewing it through a slightly different lens. Uh, this one I chose second because very much so this movie follows that same theme of being about father-son relationships and being about making wishes come true. It's it's You boil it down, I think there's some, some big similarities between Field of Dreams and A Perfect World. In both cases, Klossner is on a journey to, to restore a relationship and meet up with his father where things have been broken in the past. I just a character that I really just enjoyed getting to know through the through the film. Um, you you start with this image of a man in prison and breaking out and uh, the company that he keeps, the person he's escaping with being among kind of the most vile of, of prisoners, basically just wants to do harm for harm's sake. And um, as we get to know Costner's character, we see that there's a lot more depth and a lot more kindness to him but there's also this brokenness and, and it gets revealed throughout the movie where this brokenness comes from one of the other things that i found quite interesting and i think given the time was was probably um pretty important topic was just this the issues of feminism and looking at the time frame of the movie um the movie takes place around the same time that when we get into our our next movie uh jfk was president feminism is just this issue that we see through the character sally gerber that's played by Laura Dern. Red, the, the Texas Ranger played by uh, Clint Eastwood, is not interested in having a woman's help. She's a criminologist that the governor has sent along to try and recover these prisoners and uh, help with the psychological side of where they might be going. And Red just wants to use old school manhunt ta- tactics to shut down the roads and find them. And it's interesting watching their battle throughout the movie and then eventually how, how sorry Clint Eastwood softens towards her in the end. We have seen this a lot with Clint Eastwood's roles where he's sat in, in sort of this old world way of thinking and then he comes around to appreciating the character it's explored in quite a bit more depth than Million Dollar Baby um, this a little bit in a movie I, a few episodes ago I, I reviewed Gran Torino where he's uh, very racist and then he comes around to appreciating his, his neighbor and uh, a little bit and in some cases I find it a little bit convenient or ham-handed when this kind of thing happens. I think it, it works well here. Um, you, you, the points you're making are, are very valid about the parallels. I, I wasn't really thinking about the parallels. A little bit of the, the father-son dynamic. I, I saw more parallels, actually. We're going to be talking about JFK, as you mentioned, right after this. The obsessive nature of Costner's character in Field of Dreams, connected to the Jim Garrison he play, character he plays in JFK. Character, real person. He plays JFK uh, as more, more similar characters but in you're, you're very much right in that way I, I would suggest that a perfect world is does operate on mother earth a little bit more than field of dreams does um, absolutely yeah <laughs> the the other major theme to me besides the father-son business uh that's that's quite important is the effects of child abuse i think you know this is a 
very, very likable film. And Costner, no matter what, at this particular time, Costner would play heroes. And you would go, come around to liking Costner's character. But we can't really forget that he was in jail and he was a criminal. And uh, again, it's a little bit spoiler territory. In the third act, uh, the movie gets quite a bit darker. And I'm glad it gets quite a bit darker because there's a, a, an incredibly disturbing scene. What Eastwood's doing, and, and John Lee Hancock, who also wrote the, the screenplay, is, is doing with this, is I, I think what he's trying to show is, you know, with anti-heroes, um, they are still, they're still the anti. They're still, there's still the villain in them. Yet there are reasons why they are criminals and why they have are acting the way that they do. And it's uh, it's a really, um, really interesting thing. I, I, I did some more reading and, 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 about upon this there were some connections that uh, I'm embarrassed to say after watching this movie several times that I had not made uh, but again it goes again this goes deep into spoiler territory so again if you I do recommend you watch a perfect world before you listen to this review okay um, at eight years old Kevin Costner's character ended up in a situation where he shot his father the boy that he has kidnapped uh, is eight years old and there's a situation where he has to shoot Costner so there are there are a lot of parallels and they try really hard I think to make parallels between um, Costner's character and uh, and the little boy here uh, once again uh, played by TJ Lauer uh, Philip Perry and Costner Costner basically says to the boy after that no don't feel bad like you did the you did the right thing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like I it's it's kind of I've been in your shoes <laughs> you know I mean he still re- he still redeems himself in many ways we're still walking away liking Costner we don't want some things to happen that end up happening no matter how many times I watch this I, I feel the same way uh, I, I think a couple criticisms here for me and see if you agree um, with these and I have noticed this a bit with Eastwood's films uh, he, paint, he, he paints in broad strokes so the villains are often really really bad and we know they're villains from the beginning to the end of the movie in this case we have two characters like that um, I'm going to butcher this man's last name but Keith uh, Zarabia who plays is Terry James Pugh, who is the other uh, prisoner who escapes with Costner. He's bad through and through. And I know that there are criminal personalities like this, but there's, you, you just know that this guy's horrible from beginning to end. And, you know, things are not going to turn out right there. The, the, to me, he's, he's somewhat two-dimensional in nature. Um, but in reality, that that prisoner probably has a story not far off of Costner's. Yeah, we, we don't get to see but... his story though. And I would like to have a little bit more depth with that character. Yeah, and there's a lot of characters like that. I mean, even Eastwood himself, although he softens a little bit at the end, even Eastwood is a bit of a one-dimensional character. A lot of the law enforcement, I think, are. But I find that Costner's character really goes through these waves, like like you mentioned, where um, they're driving along and Philip is scared of him and he doesn't really know what's going to happen. And then at some point he asks, he says, are you going to shoot me? And Costner goes, no, I'm not going to shoot you. We're friends. And then he gives him the job of being the navigator and suddenly Philip you know, develops this trust. He sees that he's safe now that the other guy's out of the picture. And then, as you talked about in the third act, there's a moment where Philip sees him again through all new eyes and he's terrified of him again. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. It'd be very traumatic. This whole thing is <laughs> quite traumatic. Uh, the other character I want to mention that I think is a bit two-dimensional, and I'm going to take a little bit of exception about what you said about Clint Eastwood and his character in a moment here, but um, is uh, Bradley Whitford, who's a very good actor. He was on the West Wing. Uh, 
he plays a villain in uh, the movie Get Out. Um, he's, he's been in a lot of stuff. He plays uh, an FBI, FBI agent named Bobby Lee, um, who, like, from the moment you see him, you see he's a jerk. There's, you know, a situation where he corners Laura Dern. It looks like he's about to possibly rape her, but before Clint Eastwood steps in. And then in the climax of the film, this guy kind of goes against Clint Eastwood in a serious way. And then we have this moment where Eastwood and Laura Dern both sort of take turns like uh, assaulting this guy because he's been such a jerk and we're just so excited to see them do this but again I, I thought this guy was a you know if if you're saying Eastwood was one dimensional I mean he was half a dimension I don't know because this was not he's a very good actor uh, he didn't have the prominence at this time to get a probably a, a more uh, fleshed out role but I, I thought that was the other character who's a uh, you know capital V villain but he's not uh, it's funny he I mean he he has a big purpose in the movie uh, however at the same time he really had no purpose like you go through most of the movie and he's just in the background except for the rape scene and except for the one other scene you referred to there's mm-hmm. he's just has no other role and you really wonder what he's doing there well I, <laughs> I, I know what he's doing there uh, he has a mission his mission is to kill Kevin Costner and uh, he's doesn't care who he he's just catching a ride to get in the vicinity of Costner so that he can just do what he's been ordered to do and he doesn't care about Texas Rangers or criminologists or uh, little boys or anything like that. Been so why would that be his role from the FBI? Why would that be believable I, that he I think be there to, as an assassin? It's, 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 it's strange in a way. I mean, the only thing is kind of two, two halves of a department working against itself. Like uh, it's Texas for one thing and they aren't necessarily the most sensitive to uh, escaped uh, convicts or criminals in general. Unless you put things in the it's context election, of that movie. Supposedly an election year. It's an election year, so uh, the governor doesn't need uh, some problem like this. So I don't know if federally they would get involved or not. I, it's not very well explained, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. He, he just seems like, uh, yeah, I don't know. He just doesn't seem to have much purpose until until that one critical scene. But yeah. um, I feel like there could have been somebody else in the mix that that fulfilled that purpose. Where where I'll take a little bit of exception about um, having this red garnet uh, uh, played by by Eastwood being a one-dimensional character is there's a very, very important um, mini monologue he gives to Laura Dern explaining that he was in charge of young offenders at the yeah. point where a really critical point for, for Costner where he's given an incredibly harsh youth sentence and was sent to the school and that school, like he, what he was trying to do was to protect the boy from his abusive father. What ends up happening there then is uh, he's created a, a lifelong criminal, a career criminal from this. So he feels a lot of guilt. And I think part of his mission is to try to get this guy back in jail out of the danger of other law enforcement officers. So I feel like in there, whether that was added later on or whatever, but I thought that gave Eastwood's character uh, more of a dimension. And when certain things happen in the climax of this film, uh, the, the weight of it and the stakes of it are much much higher for Eastwood as a result of that yeah and I completely agree I don't see Eastwood as a one-dimensional character I just don't see him as being developed in the way that Costner is or even the boy Philip is those are the two um, best characters you can, in the script you can't develop every character in your film in the same way you do have to have some characters that aren't quite as developed 
it otherwise it, the entire movie would be backstory but you um i don't know it just it seems like he has a couple of moments towards the middle to end of the film where they give him a little more dimension but he doesn't have the kind of dimension that we see out of the other characters yeah. and then of Again, course there are many that are way more one-dimensional characters several of them like you've mentioned uh, i guess eastwood didn't want to act in the movie but costner talked him into acting in the movie and uh i guess initially denzel washington was uh was pegged to be uh in costner's role costner came to it a little bit later on and uh yeah interesting thing about field of dreams tom hanks was approached about field of dreams before costner was so um now we're, we're sounding pretty critical of this i think you know in many ways despite the fact that in the parallel between eastwood and costner is their their actor directors that with with these films uh two westerns in a time when westerns were apparently dead in hollywood uh they both won uh best picture and best director oscars uh costner for dances with wolves which we'll talk about shortly and eastwood for unforgiven but what's interesting to me about it is uh and when i've talked to people about a perfect world it seems like uh they were kind of dismissing eastwood's unforgiven when in his oscar night is a bit of a fluke until a perfect world and this was one year out after but until a perfect world came out people were like wow this guy can really direct and there's just several touches in here that in the wrong hands this could be just uh, you know typical cops and robbers type of a story uh and I, I think it's given more levels what eastwood does subtly and, and visually is amazing uh to give you how an idea of how fast and his his prime he was working they were filming this movie in the summer of 1993 and they had it released for november which is a quick post-production turnover so um anyway uh, he does a really nice job and um hinting at and not screaming the the abuse angle and uh the father-son stuff i think it's all there but it eastwood it on the whole is a subtle director. this was a great example of that the other piece was and i'm almost almost willing to come around to this reviewing all all five of these films um, Costner, as I said, has had his critics, but critics seem to like this performance more from him than most any other of his film performances. And I, looking at it now, I tend to agree. Like he, he is really, he's powerful. He's, um, uh, he's kind. Uh, he is also scary. He's frightening. Uh, he plays a lot of different things in this film that even in some of his more prominent um, awards, nominated at least films, I think he maybe delivers a more layered performance performance than in some of the other films that uh, around this time. Some might argue, and I'm, I'm not sure, I have to think about it a little bit, that this is Kevin Costner's best acting performance. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. He he just shows so many layers uh, in his performance. And, and then on top of that, you just have excellent dialogue throughout this movie. I, I just found the movie believable. There's not a, mm. not a spot in the movie where I'm really taken out of the story or find it um, to be kind of, I don't know, just... <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but it's 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 captured me and it held me and I did it wasn't taken out at any any point by the dialogue. And then I think going back to the very first time I saw it, the cinematography is also probably part of what uh, really captured me. Uh, starting with the opening scene, which really starts at the end of the movie, and just seeing this money going all over as he lays in the field and the trees and the it's it's really quite interesting. So Jack and Green was the cinematographer. He also uh, uh, did a beautiful job of uh, the cinematography for Unforgiven, and it was a nice collaboration with Eastwood for a while. So I, I would agree agree with you. It was a um, it's a it's a beautiful movie to look at. Yeah, I'm a bit of a sucker for good cinematography. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we're pretty positive on it that we were, you know, picking away at some flaws with some characters, maybe a couple of gaps in the screenplay. Uh, the stars to me of this are definitely Kevin Costner and Clint Eastwood's direction. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyage Dino. I mean like poignant. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? Does that help you see my problem a little better? Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flash of light in bushes, and then shots rang out. No cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They called it Operation Mongoose. It's gonna be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record and we'll protect you. And I guarantee it. You are so naive. You found us in your office. We think the conference room is also above maybe the phones. I'm not cooperating here. I'm not cooperating here. Listen, there's a death wall for me. Are the same people gonna kill us, Pop? Nobody's gonna kill us. Y'all gotta get into your minds how the hell the spooks think. Now, they're not ordinary crooks. Think the unthinkable. Question everything. Now, we're through the looking glass here, people. White is black, and black is white. You don't believe me? Huh? All this time, you never believe me. I just want to raise our children and live a normal life. I want my life back. Hey, look, this thing's bigger than all of us. Now, how many corpses is it going to take for you lawyers to figure out what you want? People got to know. People got to know why he was killed. Do you know what you've done to me? I'm a dead man! Well, if they can kill the president, they can certainly get me. Your mouse fighting a gorilla. You're close. You're closer than you think. There's going to be an attempt to kill you somewhere between here and New Orleans. And I say let justice be done over heaven's fall. <laughs> Those who know me know that um, my favorite movie uh, of all time is JFK. Uh, when I was 12 years old, uh, it was around Christmas time. Uh, the family was going to go see Beauty and the Beast in the theater. I didn't want to see Beauty and the Beast because I was at a difficult age. And I didn't want to see a Disney movie. Uh, so my my uh, my lovely uh, departed Irish grandmother uh, went with me to see uh, the three-hour-plus movie JFK uh, directed by Oliver Stone. About a good Irish boy. And, um, and yeah, it's about the only Irish uh, president ever. And it changed my world in the sense that I think before that I watched movies for entertainment and for entertainment only. And this movie raised issues that I was at the right point in my life to recognize, oh, there are serious things that have gone on in the world. And it opened my eyes to uh, the possibilities that what I've been told or what I know may or may not necessarily be true. All right. Now, here is my caveat with, as I mentioned before, we are reviewing JFK, the director's cut. Okay, so I'll talk about that in a moment. The plot synopsis is Kevin Costner plays Jim Garrison, who was a New Orleans district attorney for many years. He later became a judge. Discovers that uh, there's more to the Kennedy assassination than the official story, and he believes it was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy, and it wasn't a, a lone gunman, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. So that's the general idea. The director's cut which since about six months after its VHS release, there was the director's cut version and Stone kind of made it 
impossible to get a hold of the theatrical cut. I happen to have, and I still have it somewhere, uh, given to me for Christmas, a VHS copy of the original cut. And that was the only one I had for years. And in recent years, I found a digital copy of this on iTunes, which is the original theatrical cut. Why am I mentioning all this? Because if JFK was the director's cut, it would not be my favorite movie of all time. It gives a little bit more information in some scenes and, and lays out some scenes in a different way. But uh, there are some sequences in the director's cut, which weren't in the theatrical cut, which you might have some criticisms of, I don't know, that are downright ridiculous, are badly directed, badly written, and badly acted. And kind of, to me, lessen the legacy of this uh, wonderful experience in, that I've had with JFK. I maintain it's my favorite movie, but it's the theatrical cut, not the director's cut. That is my favorite version of JFK. That's my tangent. Uh, what do you think about uh, the director's cut of JFK? So like you said, anybody that knows you knows that JFK is your favorite movie. And so having it included in the mix was pretty nerve wracking for me. <laughs> Uh, because your truth. your movie collection is uh, is very important to you, and uh, knowing that there was any possibility that that it might go away, uh, I was really concerned. And thinking about this list of movies that we we're going to look at, I've seen all of them, but not for a while. And JFK probably would have been my least favorite on there. However, I was pretty certain that you'd bump up the number of points in the end that you'll give it, and so it's probably okay. But. Um, <laughs> But re-watching it as an adult, and as an adult who is a bit of a political nut, I'm very interested in history and politics and um, all these things. It was a totally different experience watching through adult eyes. So, I mean, for one, there's the story, and there's pieces of American history that watching this, I just need, I know I need to go and learn more about, because i don't have a great understanding of American history, but some of the big broad strokes of JFK and the civil rights movement and all of that, obviously I, I have some history on. And um, this is this film is just such a great telling of a certain time in, in history. And like I said, it's the same time as A Perfect World. Um, these two movies are set just yeah. right beside each other. They're set, I mean, a lot of JFK is in New Orleans, but really the assassination is in dallas and so it's it is set in texas as well and perfect world set in texas and it, there's a reference right at the start of the movie when uh for perfect world when red is going to steal the governor's trailer for the parade they said no jfk is coming and whatever <laughs> or kennedy's coming i think is what they said i and i assume they were talking about jfk um yeah and just a a, a fun side note as a if they were in fact intending to make that a reference to Kennedy's assassination, uh, it doesn't quite work because A Perfect World set in 1962, which is the year before Kennedy was assassinated. And because there was a governor's race happening in the fall, those races happened in 1962. Uh, 63, there wasn't a governor's race happening. So must have been referring to another uh, visit to spot John Kennedy. Yeah, even a... Uh perhaps an election stop or something. Um, but then, I mean, beyond the story and how it 
fits my personal interests. Um, when you look at it as a piece of, of filmmaking, and you are somebody who looks at films um, much more from the acting side, and obviously spending my entire life growing up with you, I've uh, learned to look at films a little bit more critically on that side as well. But my background would be a little bit more on a technical side of film production. And when I watch this film, it's just Oliver Stone, it's masterpiece with with how he uh, edits together um, historical footage, his use of color and black and white, his, the editing style that just brings chaos to scenes where there needs to be chaos. It's just high paced and cutting back and forth, close ups and like just uh, such an effective use of camera and use of the cutting room, I think. Um, it's a long movie, but he, he throws in a ton of information through yeah. cuts. Yeah, and we've got a couple of long movies and, and this one really went quickly for me. And it's because of the pace of the storytelling. And then there's a point where, I mean, we still have that that visual chaos in a sense, but I, I, I wanted to look up and I couldn't find the answer. I was really curious how, how much of the movie, what percentage of the movie went towards uh, Jim Garrison's final summation in court because it's a it's long, long portrait. Yeah. It's very long, uh, yet it held me. And mm -hmm. uh, I was very intrigued as it was just a chronological step-by-step -step laying out of all of the information from his investigation. Um, I did do some research uh, which led me to find out that that was not, in fact, his actual final summation. Um, there were actually three uh, summations done by different um, lawyers, yes. um, and they're kind of put together there. Um, but I was really, from from the film side of things, really curious how long, excuse me, how long he spent on that one scene. And in a long film already, I don't know what the start to finish time was, but it seemed like a significant chunk. My, my guesstimate was it's about 45 minutes of screen time. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's the third massive. act of the film, basically. Yeah. And it, it just takes everything that's happened before and it just puts it all in order for you. It just, it's, it's uh, like a, an excellent, excellent con concluding paragraph in a, in an essay. It just lays out the points again. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned essay because this movie's been highly criticized for not being historically accurate, and that there's a lot of wild stuff in here. Which uh, uh, there's a uh, uh, kind of a stripper character who is uh, apparently completely fictitious, and uh, there were a bunch of theories thrown in there. I don't think his, Oliver Stone was making uh, a history lesson or historically accurate film here. He was writing an essay suggesting possibilities as to how the Kennedy assassination maybe could not have been done by a single person. And there's just an extraordinary sequence as part of that summation where we see uh, what Leo Harvey Oswald would have had to do to actually have been doing everything that the Warren Commission, who made those findings, um, claims that he did. Committing the assassination, uh, going to his rooming house, uh, shooting a police officer in Dallas, uh, going to uh, the movie theater, getting arrested, and everything that happens there. And it, it's sped up. It's a remarkable sequence. Um, very well directed. So some people, I think, because so much of it is shot like a documentary, have taken it this movie kind of the wrong way. But it's it's showing the possibilities. 
be good to mention, I think Costner does a great job of centering the film. I, I hesitate, that's why I was hesitating a little bit to call um, A Perfect World his best performance. I think A Perfect World has some subtleties in that character that Jim Garrison didn't. Jim Garrison's a flashy character and Costner does that, but he has long, long monologues. Yeah. And uh, to deliver them in an interesting way. And he reacts off of much more colorful characters, but he does a great job of centering the film. He's asked to do a lot. The fight scene with his wife is important. So just on that note as a comparison, I mean, that is one of the notes that I wrote down between a husband-wife relationship. When we look at Field of Dreams, where Costner's saying, I'm hearing voices in the field, well, build the build a baseball diamond then. <laughs> and in this other one where um, Costner is the absentee father, and that mm-hmm. becomes the source of conflict with his wife. His wife is not behind this because it's tearing their family apart. Um, she, she is uh, kind of indulges him for a while and sees it as a little bit of a side hobby or something, but all along she, you know, she's concerned about how it's affecting things and it, and it does. And you see an arc of that. You see it starting with just little comments of, oh, don't you think you should take a break or, you know, are you going to yeah. come to bed or whatever. But it, it, it slowly builds and becomes this eruption of, I'm leaving. You're tearing our family apart. Your kids don't even know you. They cry themselves to sleep, like, <laughs> you know. And, and it's important to have all of that dynamic in there because – Really, the, the transition from the second to the third act is after Bobby Kennedy's been assassinated and yeah. his wife up, what wife up, and and she says, "Okay, now I understand. Now I understand." But but before all like, all this other stuff had happened, she didn't completely get that. She just thought he was needlessly putting the family in danger, which he was. They're getting creepy phone calls. The daughter is finding out what school in that same scene, and it's. It's so interesting that it's just kind of in the background and almost not even acknowledged. The the lady, the house help, um, the hired help, uh, who is an African American woman, is watching the TV about the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, and the details seem so similar to the JFK details that have already mm-hmm. been laid out in the movie. He he's just seeing this parallel, so he's standing up upstairs fixated by this she's fixated by this nobody's noticing the little girl on the phone until the mom eventually does and he's in this moment of going it's happened again and i haven't been able to stop it and he's at a complete you know breaking point where he he feels something needs to be done and his wife's at a complete breaking point because his her daughter's in in uh danger okay i'm trying to figure out what order i should do things because we are singing its praises right now might be a good point for me to mention a couple criticisms I have of the director's cut, but then I, I do want to spend some time on this cast because it is a... Let's talk about the cast because the cast it, is insane. Yeah, do you want to talk <laughs> about the cast first? Yeah, I, 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 so again, it's a movie that you showed me at some point when I was younger and had no interest in and you were really excited about. And <laughs> <laughs> I just, I watched back and it's like, every scene I'm like he's in it and then the next scene he's in it he's in it she's in it it's like every little minor character is just an academy award-winning actor uh you know if not academy award-winning it's those that actor kind of like costner who just represents a generation and was in everything you've got walter Matthau and you've got jack lemon and you've yeah, got separate scenes yeah joe pesci and you've got it's just like 
how did they get all of these people into one film? It's incredible. And then as I started searching through IMBD and seeing who else was in there and who am I going to see through the movie? John Candy's in there. Yes. You know, you just, great. every actor of the, of the generation is in there. And then there's these interesting little things too, where Oliver, son's stone, sorry, Oliver Stone's son yeah. uh, is in the movie playing Jasper Garrison. And mm-hmm. so he's got his kid in, the, in a role. And then we've got Jim Garrison himself, the real person, playing uh, Judge Warren from the Warren Commission. Basically um, his nemesis, yeah. Yeah, and, and that you're talking about kind of the historical inaccuracies where that's interesting to me that Jim Garrison is involved with the project. That to me would, would be another suggestion that they're trying to do a, a historically accurate representation of this time when he's in the movie and he's involved in the project. Well, uh, it would be... Accurate from Jim Garrison's version of history, but not necessarily the accepted version of history. Um, I remember having um, some history teachers that I know quite critical of of the shots of the uh, Zapruder film, which is the is the photographic evidence of of Kennedy's assassination. Quite a graphic thing. I don't think anybody in the mainstream public before JFK happened actually saw that, and they they use the real footage, but they also do some other stuff to slow it down and that kind of thing. And people who've watched the actual Zapruder film and watched in JFK claim that they're two different things, that uh, Stone manipulated it in some way to try to make his point, which may or may not be true. Yeah, I, I want to highlight a few of the actors. The actor who was nominated, Costner himself, he, he was in the precursors, but he wasn't nominated for best actor. I thought he should have been, but it, it was actually quite a competitive year, as it often is in the best lead actor category. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays Clay Shaw, who uh, became, becomes a, the, the main target of the investigation about the conspiracy as one of the players involved. I didn't really know Tommy Lee Jones before this movie. And he, kind of early 90s, he started to become really big. He collaborated with Oliver Stone a lot. He won the Oscar a few years later, a few years later for The Fugitive. And he's obviously an amazing actor. This is a, a character that I, I haven't seen him play since. Uh, he does quite a nice job. Uh, very prominent wig that he has on um, and character that he plays. Uh, it left an impact when I first saw it. I forgot, though, I think when I first saw it, how, how little screen time he actually has. But he's he's very subtle. There's this great scene over Easter Sunday that happens, and there's a lot of subtext and a lot of subtlety going on that would be tough to see in a, um, a single viewing of JFK in there. A really good performance from Tommy Lee Jones. Also, uh, Kevin Bacon. Is very colorful as uh, playing a prison inmate who is uh, claiming to have been a male prostitute that was hired by by Clay Shaw. My my personal favorite is uh, Joe Pesci, and I'm going to start to sound like because I just talked about the Irishman in the previous uh, episode, and uh, I have a future episode I'll be talking about Casino again. I I really like Joe Pesci, uh, but again I thought this was a stretch for him. Uh, he plays a guy named David Ferry who wanted to be a priest but uh, was homosexual, so he was thrown out of the church and he gets himself mixed in with uh, this um, this movement to try to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro and with various players who um, may have been involved or interested in uh, if they couldn't assassinate Fidel Castro assassinating Kennedy thinking that Kennedy was uh, a communist because he he took it easy on Castro um, uh, after the Bay of Pigs invasion a lot a lot of a lot of stuff there but all to say that Pesci is very very good uh, he puts a ton of energy into these scenes he's chain smoking through them he's screaming he's yelling I guess it's flashy but 
I like what he did. I'm not sure that Stone and Pesci got along that much. Uh, Pesci likes to improvise a lot. I don't think Stone wanted a lot of improvisation in his film. But I, I thought when I first saw it in theaters, is that Joe Pesci? Is that the guy from Home Alone? And I realized, yes, it's Joe Pesci. And he was kind of disappearing a little bit at points into that character. So uh, great stuff. If I could lead into a bit of a criticism here. In Jim Garrison's staff, there seems to be a little bit of a division that starts to pop up here as as they end up going along here. And what uh, we have this character named Bill Broussard, who's played by Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker is known for playing a lot of villains and over-the-top characters. Uh, some modern audiences would know him from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Some people know him from some episodes of The Walking Dead. And uh, he was in a very good film some years before JFK called Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. He plays somebody who has sort of connections to the FBI, and it looks like he ends up spying on Garrison in his office. In the director's cut, there's a bit of a longer sequence. He, he kind of, he ends up quitting uh, from Jim Garrison's investigation because of some infighting. And that's the last we see of him in the theatrical cut. In the director's cut, there's this fairly over-the-top paranoid sequence, and it looks like he's going to be walking into a situation which has been set up by Broussard where he's going to be assassinated. And there's a kind of this, this false start into it. That's the sequence that I have huge problems with. I think it's very flawed, and it keeps the director's cut from being as good a movie as the theatrical cut. We both watched the director's cut, and in reviewing the director's cut, I feel I have to mention those problems. There sometimes are reasons why movie, these, these things should be cut out of a film. And we watch, when we watch these longer ones, sometimes with a movie like Apocalypse Now, it can enrich the experience. With this movie, I don't think it helped. I think, as uh, the again, my bias, the original, original theatrical cut is as perfect as a movie can get. And we didn't need more stuff to try and improve on perfection because it's just going to lessen the impact of the film. But that's the end of my sermon on uh, the director's cut of JFK. I don't know. I didn't Racism. mind that. I didn't mind that scene. Um, I think it is interesting. There's, there's points where they say that, you know, earlier in the movie that Jim Garrison is too public for them to, to touch. But, I mean, they took out JFK. And so <laughs> so thought that scene kind of at least showed the danger that he was in and uh, how kind of hyper aware and hypersensitive he was to all of this that was going around him and picking up these signs and how he got himself out of this situation. But, but there's other scenes that indicate that that are handled much, much better. And we just, t we talked about it's, one where it's a little bit more in your face than say the scene with the daughter, um, which maybe isn't the style of the rest of the movie, but that's the version Oliver Stone wants us to watch though. So, uh, but Oliver, Stone was throughout the 90s my favorite filmmaker and it's been diminishing returns probably since I might argue since uh, 1995's Nixon. There, he's made some interesting-ish movies but it hasn't been quite the same uh, for uh, 25 years now. So is there anything else to talk about? With it doesn't, doesn't really tie in but we're just kind of mentioning some some commonalities among the movies and it's interesting when you watch a lot of movies with some kind of connected theme, the, the different connections that you can make between them. But uh, so obviously JFK is entirely about this corruption within the government and within law enforcement. And, and that, the reason I chose to put this one after Perfect World is because that was also a piece, as you mentioned, with Clint Eastwood's character, that although he was trying to help this kid, um, 
he influenced a judge to get him sent up and this this idea of corruption within the criminal justice system kind of carries through between those two yeah so overall i mean you, you know how i feel about jfk but i wanted to bring in a couple of criticisms so i'm not gushing about it um yeah but i'm, I'm glad to hear that you you got something a little bit more out of it at this age than when i age you were probably single digit age when i forced you to watch this i was very relieved because i uh was hoping that my review would not result in zero points in it leaving collection well so. i have a i have a dvd of this i have a blu-ray of it, and I have a digital copy of the original theatrical cut so i don't know if it comes last you might have to get rid of all perhaps i don't know that would, that's not part of the rules because i want to talk about it in more than one show i guess so yeah i i would say see jfk i think for modern audiences it is a long sit and some people don't like political movies and this is definitely a political movie but it is kind of fun to see this non-stop all-star lineup of actors from 1991 show up in this in this epic film i i think it's all stone's finest movie um i i, I think he, sandy who my wife who watched the several of the movies with me at least in part thought that she had no interest in this one but found herself quite drawn in by it so that's good I, I would say Oliver Stone might have, it was the year of Silence of the Lambs, so JFK, uh, much to my 12-year-old uh, chagrin, did not win. Uh, it won for uh, editing and it won for cinematography, but uh, did not win Best Director uh, nor Best Picture. I didn't understand the politics of the Academy at the time. Oliver Stone had already won Best Director for Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. So for him to win three Best Director Oscars, in a five-year period probably was not going to happen, uh, no matter how great the film was. My bias is that I think JFK is better than Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Just hear that you've been decorated and they sent you here to be posted. Actually, sir, I'm here at my own request. Why? I've always wanted to see the frontier. Do you want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. There ain't nothing here, Lieutenant. Everybody's run off or got killed. What about Indians? I watched the four hour dances with wolves or not quite sure which version you watched and maybe we'll 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 figure that out uh the plot is that lieutenant john dunbar played by kevin costner is assigned to a remote western civil war outpost on the prairies befriends wolves he encounters native americans and uh he starts to become a a problem for the military two-line summary of a four-hour 
Academy Award winning film. I would suggest that it made sense at the time. Believe it or not, all of uh, or most of the older grades at Lakeview School, where I went, we all went to Real Theater and watched Dances with Wolves in the theater. That's when I first saw it. And it was, it must have been like the big release. It was the socially acceptable Academy Award winning film. But historically speaking, people are vexed by the fact that this movie won Best Director and Best Picture in a year that Goodfellas was released. So I do have to start this off by saying, yes, folks, Goodfellas is a better movie, should have won Best Director for Scorsese, should have won Best Picture, but let's not let that diminish the achievement that is Dances with Wolves, which was a directorial debut by Kevin Costner, who also uh, co-produced this with his producing partner, uh, Jim Wilson. So I I went into this again, and I, I, I was speaking to my friend Larry Parsons, who, uh, when he came in to my place to... Uh, talk about uh, Jeff Bridges uh, a bit more than a month ago now. He saw Dances with Wolves in there. It was actually connected to a different show than the one we're doing at the time. He said, I bet you that movie hasn't aged very well. So I was curious about sitting down to see if it had aged well or not. And I was pleasantly surprised. I, I think I like it, again, being an adult, I like it more than when I was 11 years old. I saw it and I had to do this really badly written movie review for my grade six class. Uh, where nobody agreed with my my, uh, my my opinion of it. Not always on board with Dances with Wolves, let's put it that way. But an 11-year-old's attention span and understanding of the world is hopefully a little bit different than a 40-year-old. So so what was your opinion this time of Dances with Wolves? Well, I remember liking the movie to begin with, but I don't actually remember ever having a second viewing. And so I watched it as a child. I don't remember returning to it at any point, but I do think it's... It's a movie that that uh, left an impression on me. And I was just kind of thinking back as I was watching it. So the wolf is one of my favorite animals. Yes, I thought and, of you with the wolf, yeah. And I think, wolf. It, I think it very well might have started with watching this movie. <laughs> uh, so it's uh, it's interesting watching his his relationship with two socks, the wolf, develop and that little bit that, that leads into how he gets his, his name. I again it's an, another long movie like JFK and I have a feeling like I watched the extended version. Is there this a sequence one? sorry we'll clear this up right now and maybe it doesn't matter or maybe this is all something I'll edit out later but did you see a sequence with um with with Graham Greene and Graham Greene delivers a terrific performance by the way here um as he's got the medicine man for uh for, for this uh, for for this for the Sioux tribe and uh, the sequence where they they go and they see um, uh, a bunch of uh, like a burned out campsite uh, where there's all those liquor bottles and all kinds of things strewn all over the place and it's just an abuse and and of of the land which was considered very holy and sacred land was that a sequence in the version that you saw that's not sounding familiar. Also, was there a sequence at uh, the fort? Anyway, the fort where he's posted, I can't find the name of it right now. I, I knew this the other day, but where we see what happened before he arrived with the, the soldiers that had been posted there? No. So I did You watch watched the theatrical movie. cut then? Yeah. But so when I compare the two long films, Dances with Wolves felt a little longer. So I still enjoyed it, but there was a part where, you know, getting 
probably into the third act where I just went, oh, it's not done yet, <laughs> you know? And so, and, and I don't think it was just being the modern audience and being used to short films because I'd already watched through JFK and kind of had that time fly by. It just, there was a little lull in it for some reason for me. At the same time, I got to the end of the movie and I didn't know what I would cut out of it. I thought everything that it showed me was telling an important story. And and I did really enjoy scene by scene. It just started to feel a little long. Fort Hedgewig, by the way, just just so I can correct myself on that, is 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 the fort where where Costner's character John or uh, John Dunbar gets posted, and he he arrives and nobody's there. And in the theatrical cut, you don't know why that is. The director's cut shows that a little bit. It would be tough to figure out what to cut out. Unlike JFK, I actually uh, somewhat prefer this four-hour version because that's what I'm like, I guess. And I managed to sit in and settle into it this time. I suppose there might be days or times where it would be a little bit too long a set for me. Uh, I did have to stop it a couple times because, you know, right now I'm sharing a TV with some people. So there's other things like watching the, the latest news on the, on, on the COVID-19 that's, that's happening right now. So I wasn't able to watch all of it in one complete set, but I watched it all within a few hours in the same day. Costner said he likes old-fashioned movies. Old-fashioned movies, they took their time. The pace was a lot slower than even, even though the 90s had more three-hour films, I guess, and they would often do very well as far as Oscar bait. But but the movies that he's made have, have been quite long. And so I agree, the pacing might not be for everyone. It's not as, it's not hyperkinetic like like JFK, but I think it would be pretty weird if it was hyperkinetic. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't fit this movie. The pacing of this movie fit the story very well. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. I mean, I, I think, I was starting to think about, okay, with the Oscars of that year, it won seven awards, it swept the awards. Uh, Goodfellas only won one for supporting actor for Joe Pesci, deservedly so. They maybe should have looked at Goodfellas, even though it was a hard R, somewhat unpleasant look at a seedier side of life. This was um, this was dark. This had some violent moments to it, but I, I think it appealed to an older demographic of the Academy at that time, much like those who won a nominated Field of Dreams. It's, Beyond that, is this movie not groundbreaking in its representation of Indigenous people? It is. It, and it, so it's been credited for that, yes. We have, we have Indigenous characters being played by Indigenous actors. Yes. We are seeing indigenous people we're seeing the lakota represented as you know just the beauty in their culture and their way of life and and we're getting to see something beyond that kind of old-fashioned view that hollywood had um immortalized and has really uh used to the detriment of indigenous people and to the celebration of american history when it comes to relationships with indigenous people but at the same time i was curious in my research after watching was so that's my perspective watching it as a 30 something white man what is the indigenous perspective and and i'd say it's a little bit more mixed than that i think there was a certain amount of praise at the time but back to larry's comment about how does it age that's that's really the question of how does it age in looking from a reconciliation standpoint let me ask you a question because this is one of the things i, I kind of walked in with uh, my radar up on and I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted on it would you consider this to be a white savior movie white savior movies are heavily criticized where a a group usually a minority group 
needs a white man to uh, lead them in the right direction or something like that. I, I went in with that mindset and I, I don't think it quite applies to Dances with Wolves. So I don't think it is in the story, but when I read through different articles and different opinion pieces around the movie, one of the things that I read was basically here you have a wealthy white man's voice being needed uh, to show a more realistic view of indigenous cultures. And mm-hmm. why why did that have to come from a white man? Why did it have to be Costner telling that story rather than letting an indigenous person tell that story? And that's kind of a part of uh, reconciliation that we're looking at, at at this point in history now is stepping back, I guess, and ensuring that indigenous voices are representing themselves. Um, so I agree, not in the story. The, the story is not a white savior story. The concept of the movie being told from a white man's perspective is probably a, one issue with it. The other kind of critique uh, that I read was on a blog called nativeappropriations.com. Uh, and I just have a quote from there. It said, while the movie made some important steps for its time, that final, that final screen negates it all for me, solidifying once again that real Indians don't exist anymore, that we are a part of history and not the present day, etc. And so the screen capture that he's talking about is at uh, the end, he or she, I'm not sure, the name was Adrian, I believe, is basically saying, and that was, that was, you know, however many years passed, and that was the last free Sioux tribe in America and the frontier disappeared or whatever. So it's kind of saying here was this culture and it's disappeared. And I think one of the other pieces of reconciliation in the, in the world today is that we're looking at that these indigenous cultures are living cultures. And when I read on in that article, it's saying, well, Kevin Costner, who taught you the language so you could make this film, so that you could speak? Who, where did those actors come from that you use, like the living culture? And, and for the, that particular individual, that final capture on the screen, caption on the screen, kind of negated some of the story that had been told. In fairness to Costner, the writer is a writer of a novel, Michael Blake, and Michael Blake, the novelist, wrote the screenplay. Costner, I suppose, he had the power, he got it made. If it had been pointed out to him that that particular caption at the end was offensive, he probably, as a producer, would have had the go-ahead to take it out. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair point to make. So Costner, as the uh, co-producer and director, I guess, takes the responsibility. But this would have been in the screenwriting uh, stage and also going back to the source material. But yeah, I, I, I think, you know, those points and those criticisms are fair. But as a film itself, before that, the Native Americans would have been the villains. We have the, and it was the Union soldiers, not the Confederate soldiers, and that's very important because they were the eventual victors and freed the world from slavery. But it is the Union soldiers that are the antagonists, that are the villains, that destroy the land, that uh, skin the bu- buffalo just to get oh, that, that scene with the bison all skin sitting there is a haunting scene it's a, it is a you, you feel the tragedy of that and it's really kind of see um the steps were in their own way uh revolutionary and so it was yeah. moving that way i think some of these movies get judged based on right now uh, yeah unpopular best picture winner is a movie called crash which is about race relations in Los Angeles. In a a future show, I'm going to be reviewing that one. 
And there's a lot of people who feel like it shouldn't have won and that in its way, it contributes to racism as opposed to making progress. But at the time it came out, it was raising some issues that I think were kind of below the surface that are now in the forefront of our society and our culture. And, and so it's, it, it's these kind of these baby steps in Hollywood, I guess. And that's what I want to say too, is I, I think you do really have to judge the movie based on the time in which it was made. Yes. And, um, and it certainly is an effort to even the playing field a little bit more. I think it's it's just, you know, displaying these beautiful cultures and getting the general public to, to know and understand a little bit more about that than they did before. And it's even, even in an era now where we maybe know a little bit more about Indigenous culture, um, we're coming from a place. I mean, I think Saskatchewan, we sometimes understand that a little bit more than some other places. It's, it, it still uh, teaches you something in watching it. Now, as far as the film itself, I mean, I I think it's a spectacular achievement. Uh, it looks good, as I mentioned. It, you know, it did win seven awards, and I would agree very much with it. The cinematography is is, is breathtaking. Dean Semler was a director of photography. I haven't heard his name a whole lot. Uh, he isn't one of the the main go to guys. I think it's important to mention the music score. It's one of the most beautiful. Uh, orchestral scores, I think, in the history of film by John Barry. Yeah, just just beautifully done. Production design is great. Jeffrey Beecroft uh, did the production design, and the art direction was by William Ladd Skinner. A very good-looking film, put together by Costner. But I, I, I do think Costner knew what he was doing. He had studied under filmmakers he'd worked with throughout the 70s and 80s. But yeah, this is a very impressive uh, directorial debut. I like him as a director. Uh, he gets heavily criticized as a director, though. And he's also been criticized as a producer actor for starting to take over as the director of some of the films, which we'll, we, we, we may re refer to a couple of those. So some of his movies have not fared as well as Dances with Wolves. Um, but I, I, I don't think we can take away from this achievement. I think it's important. I mentioned Graham Greene, amazing Academy Award-nominated performance there. Primarily, his role isn't in the English language. A lot of the screenplay, you know, I, I, I have some issues with the screenplay, to be honest with you. It won for screenplay. I don't think it should have. But it was impressive to have, um, uh, have it in an, a non-English language, a, a great chunk of the film to be in that. The performance of the movie, to me, that we haven't mentioned yet, is uh, Mary McDowell. Mary McDowell... Uh, plays Costner's love interest, who is a white woman who's been raised by uh, the Sioux tribe. Stands with a fist. Yeah. Stands with a fist is, is her character. And to me, what was so challenging about this role was she's somebody where uh, her first language is English. I've seen her in other movies, lots of other movies. She had to learn uh, an Indigenous language become fluent in that indigenous language. And then she had scenes where uh, she had forgotten how to speak English and she had to convey that she was relearning how to speak English to be able to communicate with Dunbar, who later becomes uh, Dances with Wolves. And throughout, there, there isn't a false note in that performance. I, I think it's the best performance in the film. Costner does a quite a, quite a nice job of uh, playing John Dunbar. And Green Green is very subtle. <clears throat> it's a he he reacts. Uh, he doesn't have flashy moments as much. McDowell, in this this viewing that that's my favorite performance. 
McDonald, sorry, Mary McDonald, insane McDowell, Mary McDonald's performance. Uh, she's a terrific actor in some other movies, Passion, Passion Fish. Uh, she's in Donnie Darko. She was in a movie I quite like called uh, Grand Canyon. Um, I, I like seeing her presence in a lot of movies. I think this may be her her best her best performance. Yeah, do you want? I don't know if I quite agree with you. I I saw that in the first scene where she uh, acts as a translator between John and Kicking Bird. However, I, and I don't know if it's more a screenplay issue or more with her. I found the transition from that step to speaking fairly fluently in English a little too rapid and probably more on a screenplay side as well the the fact that once John himself was fluent in Lakota that they wouldn't communicate in that language because that's how he was identifying if they continued mm-hmm. to communicate mm-hmm. in English I think yeah. I would have liked to see at the end of the movie them communicating in in the Sioux language yeah, yeah I think uh, that was that was to make the film ex- accessible for English-speaking audiences, I suppose. One other kind of continuity piece, I guess, is what I would call it, is and it contrasts with something in our next movie with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, um, which might be the only positive contrast, positive for Robin Hood, is in the scene where the... I think it's the the Pawnee tribe is attacking the village mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and John says that he has lots of guns at the fort and he'll go and get them and he goes, uh, he takes uh, smiles a lot, I think is the kid's name, and goes and collects them. And he comes back and then in our next scene, when they're under attack, all of these two uh, individuals who are not even necessarily warriors to begin with are proficient in using their weapons. Yes. It's a big, big flaw. For, for me, that was the only piece that really took me out of the movie. That's the piece where I just felt like it wasn't realistic. The equivalent is uh, the scenes between Kevin Costner and his wife in Field of Dreams. Whereas in Robin Hood, when he takes all these agricultural farming men and and women and and turns them into archers, you see the training that happens. You see the the development. And I do know that time has passed because it's night when he goes to get the weapons and it's day when they're under attack. Mm -hmm. But I just don't believe that they've become so proficient so quickly. I could see him using the guns. Maybe he gets the kid to learn how to use a gun, but the rest of them would be using. And, and there are some characters using bow and arrows too. But yeah, I I, I wrote that down as a as a flaw in in the middle part of the film. I have more criticisms of it. I I think the first act is very very cutesy in places. Uh, there's some bits that are played for a little bit too much for comedy. I love the heart of the film. I've grown to love the third act. So the second and third acts are, are strong for me. But the beginning of the movie, not the first scene. The first scene's kind of interesting with this kind of suicide attempt that John Dunbar has because he's potentially going to lose his leg after a battle. But we, we were introduced a whole series of unnecessarily colorful characters. When, when Costner uh, reports for his his duty to go out. He encounters Canadian actor Maury Chaikin, who I believe has has passed. Um, And he's, this seems to me as a, you know, I I was trying to wrestle with this a little bit and I had a few notes about it, but he's an unnecessarily eccentric drunk captain and it has this bizarre set of really flashy scenes. The only reason or justification I can, I sort of thought of is to show, and again, you get this a little bit more in the director's cut, how badly run this operation was in the, on the frontier and that 
this guy had had a nervous breakdown and this was the guy in charge. And that's why nobody knew that John Dunbar was out there by himself uh, for all this time. So he sends him off and then you see him take his own life as, as John Dunbar takes off with uh, the guy who's transporting him. And I, I suppose what you just said is kind of a point of that scene of explaining why nobody is ever coming because he sends him off and then, and then he dies and he has no opportunity to send people after him. Mm-hmm. But when I was watching it, the only purpose I saw is showing that life on the frontier is hard. But I, shown in other ways in, in yeah I, and it didn't follow through to that was the main character's experience of the frontier the main char- character's experience of the frontier that he moved into was life on the frontier is beautiful there's this beautiful world and culture out here that i'm learning about and i'm experiencing and so i just i didn't understand it and the other one was i remember again being in in grade six watching this thing and being really excited to see robert robert uh Pastorelli, who is an actor on the sitcom Murphy Brown, he shows up as as the guy who transports Costner to the fort. And I thought that that character was a complete and total cartoon. Other than spoilers, that character's death, it it was just such a goofball performance. And it it just felt completely uh, out of sync with the tone of the rest of the film. I mean, it it was cartoonish character i don't know that it was necessarily unrealistic of what a commoner might have been like a single commoner in that space and in that time but yeah it was um sorry i had to cut you off there it seems like a character out of blazing saddles which is the mel brooks parody of westerns or he fit more into that type of a film that, than this so I and some of the writing was very cutesy some of the the stuff initially that Costner is doing I I, I think you know the movie gets going once uh, the contact is made with with the, with the rest of the tribe yeah. and and I don't I don't even mind the the romance angle in in, in this film sometimes I criticize the romances I, like take them out uh, it's a it's a little convenient it's a little convenient yeah two white people and they talk about that white girl that's been taken in and raised by this tribe and she happens to be there and the two white people happen to get together and i mean i, I do like that she she was married before and she's in yeah. pain and there's protocols connected to that again like maybe some people could say you could cut that out if you're looking for some way to cut out some material from the film, but uh, it would cut out McDonald's performance, which uh, was my... I don't, know, I don't even know if I'd be necessarily interested in cutting it out. I think I'd be interested in changing her to be a Sioux character, Sioux yeah. born. Take out this sort of backstory with how yeah. she ended up with the tribe and that kind of thing, which I believe is in both uh, versions of this song. Yeah, and that that is that scene, I think, is to show the conflict between the two tribes. Because I believe it's the other tribe that attacks yes. and kills her family. They it also is to show how she starts to reconnect with the English language, starts to remember. <laughs> um, I think that's its purpose there. Yeah, we, we see some pretty brutal scenes, but it is the enemy tribe that that does that. But they, there, there's they, a sequence where we see real. some brutality from the Sioux tribe as well after they they catch the people who had uh, skinned the the buffalo uh get their revenge and then they've they've cut them up and that might be in the extended version uh, maybe that's only in the director's cut maybe that's yeah, the that. yeah. It, it, I, that part is another example of why the director's cut's good because it shows just another side um because that you know they were warriors and there was brutality um yeah. on all sides there so 
I felt like the other tribe was was represented a little bit more in the way that old Hollywood re- would represent indigenous cultures rather than maybe if you're going to extend something extending the a little bit the history of these tribes and why they are not getting along and giving a little more dimension to the other tribe would probably do them justice well I, I think you know do you have anything else to say about dances with wolves I, I'm happy to say that for me it was it's a positive review probably even greater than uh, just a passable positive review. I've grown to reappreciate the movie. A time of war. A time of homecoming. A time when the only way to uphold justice was to break the law. He gave the people the courage to fight. Final uh, movie we're going to review is 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, it came out in the summer of 91. JFK came out in Christmas of 1991. Just just after uh, Dances with Wolves had been released in Christmas of 1990. So coming off of his big uh, Oscar night, we have one of the popcorn films of that summer. This is where I grew to love Kevin Costner was watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I watched this movie a lot uh, growing up and watched it with my friends and I was in love with the Brian Adams song. This is another example of watching this movie shortly after I turned 12 years old versus watching it as at 40 years old uh, and having become a cynical movie critic in many ways. There have been many Robin Hood versions. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that in a moment. But if you don't know the story of Robin Hood, uh, this is when Robin Hood and his Moorish companion, conveniently left out of the uh, Disney version of Robin Hood, but they were all foxes or something in the Disney one. Uh, Moorish companion is played, uh, he's played by uh Morgan Freeman. They come to England and they discover the tyranny of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Robin Hood, uh, he decides to fight back and uh, join some outlaws to do that and steal from the rich to give back to the poor. Uh, That's the general idea of this one. I I think this was Warner Brothers' attempt to uh, compete with the Disney version of Robin Hood and to create a a somewhat darker film, but also go back to the the old action-adventure stunt, kind of the 19 30s with, uh, say, Errol Flynn playing Robin Hood, that kind of thing. But we we do start off with a very dark scene with uh, a hand gets chopped off, a fair amount of violence in uh, in this version. So I remember being kind of almost, and I think these are its most effective scenes where it looks almost like a horror movie and being a little bit younger and I wasn't watching as many horror movies when I was this age, I was quite impacted by a lot of those scenes. They affected me. Uh, whether they affect me that way now as much. This for me too is one of my favorite <laughs> childhood movies. Uh, everything I do was my planned first dance at my wedding song my whole life. I, I did not get approved 
moved at my wedding last September. <laughs> However, I think it was played as part of the dance. You know, this this is another movie that I watched several times growing up, you know, had a certain impact on me. And watching it again, I kind of see some reasons for that. I'm somebody who likes to be out in the trees in the forest. We love our cabin up in northern Saskatchewan. And so seeing Robin Hood build this, this kind of treehouse village, pretty much, that was so cool to me. The sets are so intriguing. We have family in Ireland that's been mentioned. And uh, when I went there at eight years old, and again, as an adult, going to visit the castles. For me, that's what the picture of a castle was, an English castle, was the scenes that I saw in this Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie. And I saw those when I went to Carrick Fergus Castle and Castle at Donegal in Ireland. And it was like stepping into that that movie scene for me the first time I went to these places and then and then I do think it was that that it felt like a little bit of a darker version I remember after when uh, Men in Tights came out as basically a parody and I just hated it everybody all we were kind of teenagers and everybody loved this movie and I just hated it because I loved the other version and I didn't want a comedy I wanted that what I felt was like a darker version I didn't want the cartoon version of Robin Hood I loved this story and then I watched it back <laughs> and when I watch it back it is cartoony one example is the sheriff of Nottingham goes down into the dungeons of the of his castle uh, he has the witch of Nottingham castle there and the fog in this room and the toads hopping around and it is just so cartoony it's <laughs> it doesn't fit with the visuals of the rest of the film why would there be this fog settling in this one room of the castle like I contrast that's one thing I want to contrast to uh, dances with wolves when when he steps out into the fog and is having the herds of bison run past him for the mm-hmm. first time it fit i believed it it was you know in those early dawn hours and the dew is rising up from the <laughs> ground and causing this fog and it was believable and it just did not fit the movie when i watched it in robin hood friends of thieves and then the melodrama there are some points that just like turn it on big time and I am somebody that likes that melodrama I like my big happy ending at the end of a movie that you know everybody's smiling and cheering and standing and whatever Mr. Holland's opus uh, everybody stands and cheers I love those moments but uh, this movie had some that I just couldn't take it threw me right out of the movie completely uh, one is when Robin Hood and I think it's at least one of the posters for the movie when Robin uh, is shooting his arrow to uh, to save his half brother. Spoiler alert! Will uh, Will um, what's his last Scarlet and played by Christian Slater. Yeah, played by Christian Slater. And we go into slow motion. The entire screen behind Robin is all these massive flames, a wall of flames, and you just see this close-up of the arrow tracking its way in it's just so melodramatic you follow that up with morgan freeman who very much um like james earl jones is a man who can give a speech Uh, and you can you can take a speech that anybody else would give and it would fall totally flat and morgan freeman delivering it will usually make it work but morgan freeman after this um when they're kind of losing the battle. Uh, stands up and silences the crowds and gives this big melodramatic speech about you need to get behind us and attack everybody. And it just felt like Russell Crowe in The Gladiator, which for some people got him an Academy Award. But I know for you, and I would agree with you, that is one of the most melodramatic, terrible speeches in film history. 
And so this one felt very much the same. And and then Sheriff of Nottingham, when he's dying, it's like how many stumbles and trips and like, it just seems like there's certain moments that are a high school acting class in this one. Well, no, no, I, I'm, okay, let's not, let, let's not get after the acting in this case. I, I would defend it. I, I think, I think they were directed to do that. Alan Rickman, many argue, would argue that one of the greatest film villains of all time was uh, Hans Gruber in Die Hard. And many would argue the best Harry Potter character is Professor Snape, played by Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman knows how to play a villain in an action movie or a popcorn film. I am suspecting, because I know, I think there's a little bit of tension at points here where Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner uh, were pretty good friends. And uh, I think there were points where Costner uh, was trying to direct the film uh, or questioning or like sort of stepping on the toes of Kevin Reynolds. And there may have been some behind the scenes stuff here where somewhere along the way, uh, the actors were encouraged to play some of this up a little bit because I had memories of Alan Rickman being very, very effective in this movie. And he's a guy, I, I'd never seen him deliver a bad performance, to be honest with you. And this, you're right, it looks bad, but I'm not going to blame the actor for this. I'm going to blame the filmmakers. And, you know, so, I agree with you, it's not fantastic, but he's he, he he's better than that. Uh, Morgan Freeman's better than this. I don't know if Morgan Freeman now would have taken it. I feel like he was offered a paycheck. This was a paycheck performance. They were trying to sort of infuse this idea that, unlike previous versions of Robin Hood, where the Christians are kind of made out to be uh, the wholesome, you know, heroes uh, and... Uh, you know, Muslim characters were always villains. It was trying to take a step into like sort of seeing, okay, well, you know, not everybody, you know, it was trying to take a look at the Crusades and the horrors behind the Crusades and that the supposed enemy there was not really all that bad. It was an important kind of semi-political character, uh, but not sure. I think it was still Freeman's characters doesn't have a whole lot of dimensions other than his life was saved by, by Robin Hood. And so then his mission is to save Robin Hood and he goes along on this adventure with him. Yeah. Uh, they got a, they, they got some pretty good actors, but like the casting, the casting for this is bizarre. Like you actually look at the, at least Alan Rickman's British, right? <laughs> They had a whole series. Okay, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, and I, I like her. I, I, I think she kind of disappeared for a little bit. Um, I guess one of her more famous uh, roles is playing uh, Tony Montana's sister in Scarface, uh, where she played a, uh, a Cuban-American. And I've seen her in some other thrillers and that kind of thing. Um, she She's American. Um, she's Italian. And I'm not quite sure why she's playing British Maid Marian. That character, I think, the, the women are kind of secondary in a lot of the movies we've been talking about. Like, there's Laura Dern as a few moments of kind of trying to bring out some quasi-feminism in, uh, in a perfect world. But a lot of them are either, like, unrealistically supportive wives or somewhat critical wives. But I actually think that this was the worst characterization or worst role. I mean, there's a couple of scenes where uh, we discover that she she knows how to fight and how to be in disguise a little bit. But I think her entire being is still to be Robin Hood's love interest here. And I think she's a talented actor who's wasted in the movie. I have no idea why Christian Bale is in this film. Or it's Christian Bale, excuse me. Christian Bale would make sense because he's actually British. But Christian Slater is in this film because... 
I mean, Christian Slater, he, he does a, a half-decent British accent, but I, I think it was just, we could get Christian Slater, who was really hot at that time, to be in this movie. Let's go for it. This felt like a studio decision more than the best person to to fill this role. Um, there's a lot made of. I, I like Costner as the action hero, and I, I I think it's I'm betraying the 12 year old part of myself if I'm to say that Costner uh, doesn't do a good job here. There's a lot made of the fact that he couldn't do a British accent in the early scenes. He has some bad attempts at it, and later he just goes with the American accent. Yeah, he's probably not the person that other than the star power because he was really a hot item, a number one movie star at the time to have as the lead for your film but that was maybe not a good enough reason for him to play Robin Hood but he's not as awful as he's made out to be but it's still weird casting you know and and so when you know, like break down a, a lot of this Brian Blessed's in the film which is a nice addition he's he's a terrific uh, British character actor and and Rickman as well but there's like the casting's a little bit of a mess and it, it feels like a, a movie that the studio came in and 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 reworked at some point whole movie just it would never be this running length now like it it is uh and i don't know like you watch the director's cut which i'm not sure what added scenes you had but this is a long popcorn movie it's about a two and a half hour adventure film right it moves at a decent pace i think but i think it you know and obviously you know if it's appealing to 12 year olds in 1991 it worked but looking at it now i mean stacking it up against these other films i i i i went from it being one of my favorite uh, summer movies when i was a kid to almost not liking it almost to the point of not recommending it just quite a, a turnabout for me oh i i just found it really disjointed i I liked Costner in it. I found him to be fairly consistent in what we got from him. But moments that were fairly serious and dark, moments that were fairly cartoonish, moments that were melodramatic, and then moments that are are quite good. Um, And then some very comedic moments. Like, Mm -hmm. the dialogue is actually hilarious, some of the lines. (laughs) I almost was watching it more as a comedy this time. Uh, A lot of it coming from Nottingham. Loxley, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. With a spoon, yeah, that's a famous one. And then yeah. he brings it back later. Uh, cancel the kitchen scraps for the lepers and no more merciful beheadings. Merciful beheadings. <laughs> uh, Calls somebody a you little ferret, which I just found mm-hmm. hilarious. Caesar has spoken my leper friend. And then he pauses, is this your finger to scare off the... <laughs> I got a laugh out of that one too, yeah. But yeah, like... Tell me what the... Th- those lines, though, are given to Alan Rickman. You know they're going to be played over the top. If those lines are in there, you're in a cartoon, you're in an over-the-top uh, summer action movie, so maybe we're being a little bit too hard on it. Uh, but, it is, but I think the younger versions of ourselves watch this movie as, this is the serious dark Robin Hood. And it's so interesting to watch it back and not see that version of the movie. I, I like the scenes with the witch, actually. I, I know you, you thought they were a bit... They are consistent with it being... A little bit darker and a little bit over the top. She in some ways reminded me of uh, a uh, one of the like a, a character from the Evil Dead movies or something like that, which are these great horror comedies. So I actually think some of that stuff worked. The melodrama and like the schmaltzy romance. I mean, I, I think I bought it when I was younger. It's eye rolling now, but I'm more into the romance. All it's the good. stuff from a, a 1990s Hollywood produced summer action movie that summer it just so happened that there were some really important movies that came out boys in the hood which is an incredibly important almost like a follow-up to uh, do the right thing which i mentioned before 
Thelma and Louise, which is the kind of the great feminist uh, film of, of, of 91. Uh, some huge critical successes that came out of that summer. Robin Hood made a lot of money. Uh, it entertained us as uh, preteens. Um, so I'll give it credit for that. But, you know, it, it's it's not a serious movie. And I'm, I'm not sure I can, you know, defend it much, much more than that. But someday, somewhere, someone may find out the damn truth. We better. We better, or we might just as well build ourselves another government, like the Declaration of Independence says to when the old one ain't working, just, just a little farther out west. An American naturalist wrote, a patriot must always be ready to defend his country against its government. I'd hate to be in your shoes today. You have a lot to think about. You've seen much hidden evidence the American public has never seen. You know, going back to when we were children, I think that most of us in this courtroom thought that justice came into being automatically, that virtue was its own reward, that, that good would triumph over evil. But as we get older, we know this just isn't true. Individual human beings have to create justice, and this is not easy, because the truth often poses a threat to power. And one often has to fight power at great risk to themselves. All right, now it's time for some mathematics. But before that, I want to thank you for uh, helping me spend a few hours in this uh, interesting time of isolation that we're in, talking about these five films uh, and bringing back some memories of these, to me, early Kevin Costner films. Uh, the time when I, I might argue he was the number one movie star in the world. And the critics still liked him. Uh, do, you, do you have your, uh, your points totaled in there? I am all ready to go. You're ready to go. Okay, we're going to start off with Field of Dreams. How many points would you give Field of Dreams? Also, this whole thing, it was interesting after watching each movie to readjust my points. It's not the <laughs> same as just marking a movie, rating a movie out of 10 or out of 5 stars, because yeah. to give to one, you have to take away from another. Yes, it's, it's very frustrating at times. Field of Dreams is a movie that I want to give a lot to, because the nostalgia side of it does hold up for me, and I, I still love it, and I want to watch it over and over. But when I look at it critically, it just doesn't line up with some of these other movies on the list. So it had to go kind of, it had to be one of the ones that lost a little bit to give, give some ground to the others. So in the end, Field of Dreams, I'm giving seven points. Perfect World. Perfect World. Like I said, it's a movie that I do enjoy, despite sounding quite critical about it. It's a movie that I've watched over and over, mainly I've been exposed to in my adult life, so my perspective didn't really change too much on it. And it sits right in the middle for me. It's a 10. JFK. Director's cut, I should say. Director's cut of JFK. JFK was the one that surprised me how much I enjoyed it. Others thought it was going to be homework. Yeah, others, others had to lose quite a bit of ground, so JFK is getting 15 points. Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves. Another one that really stood out, stood up for me. Um, it was close to JFK, but uh, one little flaw with the gun scene kind of pulled me out of the movie a little bit. I'm giving it 13 points. And Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And that means we only have five points left for the melodramatic, somewhat disjointed Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I gave Field of Dreams uh, five points. It, I, I, I think I sounded a little bit more positive about it in the review, but I, I just kept finding problem after problem after problem with it. 
And again, maybe the perspective of, okay, what, what's its purpose? It's a fantasy. Does it, you know, meet its target audience? Yes. But when we're looking at it against these other four films, at least uh, against three of them, it, it, it doesn't hold up as much. I'm happy that it got a Best Picture nomination. I actually think it has a legacy to it uh, since 1989, as does Do the Right Thing. I'm not sure the winner that year, Driving Miss Daisy, is as appreciated as uh, as either of those films are. So, but Field of Dreams five, A Perfect World, it, it kind of blew me away how much it'd been a few years, how much I love this movie, and it scored a bit higher than I thought it was going to. I gave it twelve points. I do think it. There's an argument that could be made that it is Costner's most layered character. It's kind of between it and JFK of of this mix of performances for me. But in a short period of time, uh, with a director who is not Kevin Costner uh, or Oliver Stone, they were both like their films long. I don't think Eastwood likes his movies uh, to be all that long. I think it was quite focused. It was nice for Costner to not be a producer or not be doing a million other jobs, to focus on a character and to play that character really well. And it just kind of got the best out of Costner there. JFK, director's cutter, otherwise, um, uh, no doubt it was my favorite film of, of, of this list, even though I have more problems with the director's cut. I gave 20 points. I, I maybe am unreasonably biased uh, in this way, but uh, yeah, that's... that's, that's how I thought you might protect that one a little bit. Yeah. Dances with Wolves, uh, I gave 10 to. I feel like that's maybe a little bit low. Uh, when I was trying to work out the points, I, you know, it was, I've been used to working with 60 points with six movies and, and 90 points with the last uh, episode I did. So I had to scale back a little bit. Dances with Wolves, the first act, I think is problematic. Uh, you mentioned some things that perhaps have not aged that well or some modern day criticisms of it but it is a sweeping epic it's a beautiful movie to look at there's three incredible performances in here and uh maybe i'm not as much of a fan of the writing of it yes goodfellas should have won best picture but dances with wolves is in a way an important film and i'm not sure it's one a lot of people have gone back to and revisited and maybe there'll be a kind of a resurgence of it now that uh we're looking at its uh, believe it or not 30th year anniversary this year with it being uh, year 2020. And we'll end it off with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is probably lowered in my esteem the most, and probably predictably so, because it was a popcorn entertainment film, whereas the other four, I think, uh, have greater ambitions. Uh, this was to kind of retell a classic story, make it as un-Disney as possible, maybe a little bit darker, but in the PG-13 range, so it's not so dark that you lose your teenage audience. It mostly succeeds at that, but uh, it has its problems. But I only gave it three points because I gave a lot of points to some others. So what does that mean? It means that Field of Dreams got 12 points, Perfect World received 22 points, JFK received 35 points, Dances with Wolves received 23 points, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves received eight. The movie that must leave my movie collection is the DVD copy of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the theatrical cut. So you get to decide what I do with this, whether it's something I do now or something I have to do once uh, life gets back to... Uh... Well, you and I have been uh, attempting to record an episode of this podcast for something like seven or eight months. <laughs> and it took a massive 
pandemic that uh, had everybody self-isolating in their homes to get through watching all the movies and record the podcast. And I think there are a lot of other people out there who need uh, a little bit more entertainment and are searching for ways to to fill their now additional time at home. So I think you should put the movie up on social media and offer a socially distanced video drop-off for anybody that is willing to uh, take the movie, use it to fill their self-quarantine, self-isolation time, and then uh, also willing to pass it on to somebody else after they're done to fill their time. I will put it up on uh, Facebook and Instagram and uh, see who uh, the first taker is and, and do that. Thank you so much for doing this. And maybe we can talk uh, very shortly since we might be in this for a long period of time, uh, looking at uh, recording another episode uh, sooner rather than later here. But thank you so much for uh, talking about Kevin Costner with me. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for introducing me to many of these movies and making them an important part of my childhood and growing up. So I just want to say before uh, we end this episode, uh, as always, please check out my friend uh, Larry Parsons' show, Rank and Review. And please, please, uh, I'd like you to, you know, please like this, uh, the Facebook group for Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, I would like you to share it out to your friends and neighbors. And uh, If you have any feedback, please email me at uh, Show at gmail.com. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you. So uh, everybody out there and to my brother, please take care and be safe uh, during these difficult times.